Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast featuring a host that'll disappoint you more in 20 minutes than Tottenham. But which one? Uh, my name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written a broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. Above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And this past week has featured triumph, disappointment, dismay, celebration and more. And fittingly, that's also happened on football pitches as well. Arsenal made it three straight draws with another disappointing display at home to Southampton, while Tottenham, never to be outdone by their counterparts, conceded five at pace against a Newcastle side that couldn't believe what was happening themselves. We also saw some FA Cup semi-final action, a title winner further down the pyramid, and some crucial results for teams at the bottom of the table. But let's get right into that Tottenham-Newcastle drubbing. What uh, what unbelievable first half of the first half. What an unbelievable first half of the first half indeed, to the point where uh, I was watching this game at home and... A few of the goals, uh, just because a lot of them were sort of very similar, except for obviously, you know, Jacob Murphy's absolute banger, but a lot of them came sort of just someone waltzing through the defence and, and, you know, firing across Hugo Uriz. A few of the times I had to double check that they weren't sort of replaying a goal from slightly earlier. And I was like, <laughs> it, how, how is this happening? Did I, did I have too much to drink last night? How was how it 5 0 already? Um, a bizarre, a bizarrely poor display from uh, Christian Cellini's Tottenham. Sure um, the shift to a back four for the first time, I believe, this season um, really didn't work out at all. And it is worth saying that as soon as he sort of abandoned that uh, that little sort of venture, they then went to 1-1, uh, you know, over the course of the time that they had sort of the back five back. Um, although by that point, Newcastle had scored five, so normally you try and stem the bleeding a little bit earlier. Um, but the back four was so <laughs> disastrous that, that they conceded five that quickly. And in a sense, it's not massively surprising when you look at the makeup of that back four. I mean, you had Christian Romero Shaw, who is a World Cup winner, but I think he's definitely had his shortcomings. And certainly since the World Cup, has seemed to just be on a quest to get a yellow card every game. But then you look at the other members of the back four, like Perisic and Pedro Porro, are both converted midfielders. They're wingers, really, who've been converted into wing backs. And then Eric Dyer, who, I mean, I would go so far as to say is, isn't a footballer, uh, but certainly isn't like, he's, he's a, a midfielder again by trade who's been converted into a centre-back and always, in my opinion, has been a, a real weak link in that Spurs defence to begin with. Yep, yeah, I agree with you. And you're right. I mean, to, I mean it's funny because while, while you're right, it's, it's, it's weird to make changes while you're 5-0 down. That was only the 23rd minute that, that they made that substitution. Um, and that in itself, to make a tactical sub at that point, is still really rare. Um, it's, I mean, I, I just don't know why you would choose this game to change things up. You're facing a Newcastle side who were in, in incredible form. Um, you know, they're scoring goals for fun. Alexander Isak has been great. Um, they're at home as well. So to go away to a team that's been flying while you yourselves haven't been having just fired a manager and to be like, let's change everything is, you know, not just not keeping with, with the interim manager tradition. And I think it is, it is therefore fitting that uh, there was another break from interim manager tradition in England, at least, which is that they actually fired the interim manager, which I don't think has ever happened before. Yeah, they've gotten the assistant to the assistant. So it's Ryan Mason back in uh, to take the helm again. And that guy, uh, you know, he must have like just the most stressful life ever because he only ever gets the job when things are really going badly at Tottenham. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Although I feel like he picks it up at such a bad point that 
almost anything could happen and it wouldn't be worse than losing 6-1 to Tottenham, to, to Newcastle. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the context of this game, obviously Newcastle now such a resurgent, or, you know, a team in a new era pushing for top four, is that this was a real top four six-pointer. You know, Tottenham really needed to win this game after their loss to Bournemouth to get back into the mix for top four. And, and they lost that chance in a stunning fashion. Now, there are still a few games left to go, but with these players having that sort of, you know, millstone around their neck of having conceded five goals that quickly and the new manager who's the assistant to the assistant uh, being in charge, it doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence that they can turn things around in the remaining six games they've got to play. No, it sure doesn't. And, um, you know, if anything, it now means that if Liverpool win the game in hand, they'll go fifth. It means that if they slip up and Aston Villa win a game where they don't, um, they'll go sixth. Um, you know, it, Brighton also have a chance to to catch up to them with their three games in hand. So, um, you know that they it, it's going to be an uphill battle for sure. Um, and looking at the fixtures that they've got left, Manchester United and Liverpool and Aston Villa and Brentford, it's going to be a tough end to like, run into the end of the season um, with all of those fixtures and trying to keep pace with the the teams around them who are ostensibly in better form than they are yeah it, it was really was unbelievable and it's you know, interesting to note that the players have now come out and refunded all the traveling fans who went up there because i really just did feel for imagine you know taking the train or driving all the way up to newcastle from from london uh and it's a you know it's a sunday you've taken time out of your day you've spent a fair bit of money either on a train or, or on petrol or, or whatever your mode of travel is and the team has given up the game 20 minutes in and there were some videos of fans leaving after 25 minutes which I think is completely fair enough if if the players have let you down to that degree it was just a really really bad performance and I saw a few different people having a few different takes on it some people suggesting that this is just a tactical issue as we sort of discussed having that back for some others saying that this is just what happens when there's no accountability when there's no sort of the, the buck never stops at Tottenham it sort of goes round and round and round often it does stop only at the manager because Daniel Levy is sort of keen to shift the blame somewhere but the players can kind of get away with it. They've had so many consecutive managers without any success, and it's always somehow not their fault. The owners, same thing. You know, Conte pointed out himself, the owner's been there for 20 years and they've not won anything. Yeah. Um, so it's never the owner's fault. And I think that's what, you know, if you know the substitute teacher is never going to cotton on, then why would you put the effort in? <laughs> yeah, I think there are there are a lot of things that, that, that uh, you know, all combined to, to make this happen. The first is that, Newcastle played fantastically from the get-go. Um, you know, any team scoring in the second minute really has the bit between their teeth and they finished their chances well. Um, that that initial run in the first 20 minutes was a fantastic display in, in being efficient and taking your chances. Um, and I think that, you know, if that game gets played 10 times, they don't score five goals in that first 20 minutes more than half of those times. Um, you know, I, I think it's just the case that they happen to be very prolific in that moment. I think on the back of that, um, Tottenham then basically collapsed and Newcastle conversely were like, hey, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Let's keep banging them in. Um, I mean, that Jacob Murphy's second goal, I think it's my favourite goal of the whole season, um, if not for the last couple of years, just because firstly, love the goal. I love it when a goalkeeper is rooted, um, especially when it's a long ranger. And I just just for him to bang that in, and then to look so joyously surprised filled my heart with so much joy. Like it really did well, fill me with joy. 
It, it was brilliant. And one of my favourite um, like Premier or like football happenings there when they sort of interviewed him afterwards and they were like, oh, you look really surprised. He was like, oh, no, I wasn't surprised. I was like, yeah, you were, mate. We all were. <laughs> <laughs> he was like trying to claim that he was just like overjoyed it was like you were exactly surprised everyone else watching that game that that one went in because i think he scored like five premier league goals in like all together before this and then he scored two in about five minutes or or, or whatever it was um yeah, seven minutes go. two minutes ninth minute um but yeah i think look yeah newcastle definitely took their their chances and they played really really well there was a part of it, and this is not to take away from Newcastle at all, because you do have to take those chances. Where it just it, what it looked like was a real life version of you know you're playing FIFA with your mate, and he goes to the toilet, and while his controller's down, you unpause it and you run around all his players and you score because it was that's how easy it was to just get through that Tottenham defence. And every time I think it was six shots on target in the first twenty minutes, and five of them just went straight in. Um, and I, I, you know Hugo Lloris has not had a great season. He was he was subbed off at half time here and. They didn't score and concede another five goals in the second half. But I just think he's got to do better. And I think the defence have got to do better. It was just really, really, really poor. And I don't say that to take away from, you know, a stunning long-range shot from Jacob Murphy. Actually, not even my favourite goal of the of the game. My favourite one was the Joe Willick assist to Isaac's first I mean, I mean, goal. That, which was the outside of the boot was fantastic. but Tremendous. Just, just the bang and then and then the surprise, the happiness. I was like, yeah. But you only, you only have the confidence to do things like that, to take those shots or to do those sort of outside of the boot, you know, 40-yard passes when you know you're playing against a completely dejected and, and, to be honest, absent team. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, in terms of that absent team idea, I want to just um, quickly touch on leadership um because it's something that quite obviously the Spurs side is lacking um you know the the two main players that you would look to in this lineup are Harry Kane and Hugo Lloris neither of which are are particularly dynamic neither of which are particularly good at marshalling and motivating and and leading um Harry Kane tends to you know for for all of you know I'm not trying to bash Harry Kane right now it's definitely not my intention He's a fantastic footballer and what he does in terms of leading by example, often in games, is fantastic. But he is not a man motivator. Um, and Hugo Lloris as well is, for all intents and purposes, I think quite a quiet goalkeeper. Um, and apart from that, I think it's it's a team of players who are, are not unaverse to, to like playing in the shirt, but Ivan Perisic at left back. Pedro Porro at right back. He's new to the club. Oliver Skip in the midfield. Um, he's still still a bit green around the ears. Um, I, I'm surprised by Pierre Emil Hoiberg. I, I would have thought that he would have a little bit more um, in terms of he, he was he was maybe Spurs' worst player on the pitch in, in those first. Well, minutes. well, exactly. And I think um, I mean you just saw how important he was to Southampton, not just because of. Well, how good he was, sorry, by the fact that when he joined Spurs, they got immediately better. And when he left Southampton, they got immediately worse. Um, but the key point is, when he was at Southampton and they did have quite a good midfield, he had a good defensive midfielder next to him. He played in a, a pivot, a two pivot, and he did a really good job of of kind of progressing the ball up the pitch. And that that is his strength, not playing um, out wide in a, in a three-man midfield. Um, you know, he was really good with, um, I want to say it was Oriol Romeu. Um, and he was terrible um, and quiet. And he, to me, is a player that I would think could have good leadership. Song Hyun Min, very quiet, got subbed. Um, I think that no one stood up in this game. Absolutely no one. From the manager to every single um, person on that pitch. To Apart from, you know, I guess you could argue, Harry Kane in the second half. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Harry Kane in the second half, but he, it's always easier to score when you find out because there's no pressure, which is, of course, Harry Kane's favourite environment. <laughs> That's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hugo Hugo Lloris coming off at half-time, it's a bad sign. It's, it's not a great sign at all. Newcastle, though, be very happy with that. Obviously, good for the goal difference as well, although their main rivals are United, who have like this hilariously low goal difference. Um, but it's all good. I mean, they're they're you know definitely looking like they've all but locked up top four now um and it's good to sort of return to this after a 3-0 loss to Aston Villa who you know brought the Newcastle they've been you know they have scored a lot of goals in recent weeks by that game but that did look like it might be a little bit of a bit of a stumbling block um but to come back like this is just fantastic and it's funny when we look at Newcastle now because I think we think about this new Newcastle as the project, just by the way they've been playing the football and, and where they are on the table as sort of that project already being there. But a lot of the players in this game and throughout the season have been players they had last year when they weren't doing so hot. So obviously credit to players like Nick Pope and Sven Botman and Alexander Rizek who've come in and you know given a new lease of life to the rest of the squad. But also credit to the the Joe Lintons and the Joe Willocks and the, the Matty Longstaffs of this, or the Sean Longstaffs rather, of this team who have you know, really shown themselves equal to the improvements around them. I think that you've got to give real credit to uh, Eddie Howe in the way that he has integrated the money, basically. Um, the way that he has has marshaled and, and presided over the transition from Newcastle as a mid-tier side to a, a more ambitious Newcastle's willing to spend money and, and challenge. Um, and I would say it's the most impressive display of, of that kind of transition maybe that I've ever seen because of the way that, as you say, um, that all of the players already there haven't just been ostracised. They've stood up to be counted. Um, I, I really like this Newcastle, to be honest, and, and I didn't think I would um, when they were getting bought out. No, you you thought that it might be a little bit all over the place and they'd have to have that sort of halfway house season before they could get into the mix. And people are already talking about them potentially making a go for the title next season, um, which I think is maybe a little bit premature, um, just because I think a lot of the other big teams that have fallen off the season are probably going to be back next year. But then I would have said it was ridiculous if you suggested they were going to finish third this season. Uh, not that they have yet, but they certainly look uh, in the best possible position to do so. Mm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's... Um you know, they, they've earned that spot absolutely um, more than anyone around them. Um, Manchester United do have a game in hand on them. So, it, you know, it's still um, to see whether or not they'll finish third or fourth. But they look good for fourth. Um, they've got a couple of points on um, the teams below them. They've got not the hardest run in um, of any team. Um, they're playing Leeds. They're playing um, Southampton. They're playing Everton. Um, peppered in there is games against Arsenal and Chelsea. Um, but yeah, you, you've got to you've got to imagine that that they will finish that top four, and then again it'll be about another transition, which is um, taking the team from a domestic team to one that challenges in Europe, um, and, and the troubles that come with that, and trying to maintain your um, your domestic success. Um, but if if that first transition is anything to to go by, it's going to be handled pretty well. Yeah, for sure. And and that's a transition that has been handled well. I just want to finish off talking about Tottenham just one last little bit here because that is a transition that has really not been handled well. We've got two um, you know, comparable teams in a lot of ways over the last few weeks in Tottenham and Chelsea, who obviously both parted ways with uh, managers. Um, you know, maybe unfairly, maybe for non-footballing reasons, but 
I think the difference between Tottenham and Chelsea, firstly, Chelsea are apparently very close to appointing a new manager in the form of Mauricio Pochettino, which is a further dagger to the hearts of the poor old Spurs fans. Um, definitely sort of not something they want to see their best manager of the last however many years it would be mm. uh, going to sort of a, one of their biggest rival teams. But I think the difference between Chelsea and Tottenham, when we looked at these sort of run-ins, Chelsea really didn't have anything to gain or to lose towards the end of the season. And as hilarious as it is to appoint Frank Lampard, there was never any real risk of going down, and they'd kind of already lost any chance of getting into Europe, realistically, when you look at the Villas and the Brightons and the Brentfords and, and the Fulhams above them. Yeah, there was just, agreed. So giving the game, so giving the team over to Frank Lampard for the rest of the season, it's not what I would have chosen to do. And as we've discussed previously, I think there's a lot of long-term damage that could be done there where, in terms of sort of like players' confidence and things like that. But just in terms of this season, you don't really lose out that much by appointing Frank Lampard. Conversely, for Spurs to sack Antonio Conte and sort of sit there wringing their hands over whether they want Julian Nagelsmann, whether they want, you know, whoever it is, Luis Enrique, whether they want Thomas Frank and, and not appoint anyone and give it to not even Ryan Mason initially, Christian Cellini, Conte's number two, is essentially throwing away the Champions League. They've basically made the conscious choice to throw away any chance of Champions League football next season, which I think is unforgivable. And I think most of the fans, you know, obviously agree with that. That's just not ever something that even from a non-footballing perspective, just from a business perspective, it's baffling. And I think it really represents how checked out the Tottenham ownership are with the club. It's a good point. I think that it's a, it shows a bit of pettiness, a lack of ambition to get rid of, of a manager that was complaining about the club and, and openly complaining. But, um, you know, probably under his his uh, his leadership would have got them to finish um, in in the top four um, to now where they look pretty listless. Um, and I mentioned Aston Villa there um, earlier. Aston Villa will be playing um, Spurs before the end of the season, which means that if they win that game, Spurs will drop out of um, of fifth place. So, yeah, it, it's it's strange and it's surprising to an extent. Um, but again, you said it earlier. This team hasn't won anything in 20 years. Um, and I think that if you're talking about blame, you've got to look at the the hierarchy for continuing to make these kind of decisions. Um, I mean, to sack Pochettino in the first place was was absolutely one of those decisions. They were building something there. And then it, mm. it all just crumbled. Um, and, you know, th- this is not a new thing. So I guess I said it was surprising. It's really not. Yeah. No, no, you, you are right. I just think, you know, you look at the results they've had under Stellini. It was a, you know, after that 3-3 draw to Southampton, they had the 1-1 draw with Everton, which is obviously not fantastic to have at all. The 2-1 win over Brighton, which I think they were really lucky to get away with. And then losses to Bournemouth, which, is, you know, Bournemouth are not a strong team this this year, and getting, getting hammered by Newcastle. It's a, a gallery of, the only thing saving it is that, that lucky win over Brighton. But I think that's one of those cases where the result has masked the performance. Um yeah. I, I just don't know what they were thinking. And I think the only conclusion is that they, they weren't really thinking. And that's what the fans are so rightfully angry about. Yeah, it's... I mean, I think the other thing is that, you know, Conte's comments don't happen in a vacuum. You know, they happen because he is incredibly frustrated with the club, with the players, with the lack of ambition. And and then he comes out and, and says those things. And it, with the benefit of hindsight, I really just see it as like, that's him doing his... That you know, like when you're ready to quit the job and you walk in and you demand a raise, kind of thing. 
and you're like, mm. well, if they don't give it to me, then that's fine because I'm checked out. That's my red line, yeah. Um, and that's kind of how I see I see this. And the club at that point had a had a decision to make, and it was to publicly back the manager who is incredibly successful and say we're behind him. We want to do what we can to support him. Um, we want to support the players as well, and we want to move forward together and and hopefully win things. Or they can just you know, very quietly and with little fanfare go, okay, yeah, you're gone. We're going to get in someone who is not going to see out success to the, to the tune of European football next year. Um, and again, as you say, accountability, there's been no, no sort of addressing of the concerns, the criticisms that Conte made. Um, there's mm. been, there's been nothing. So it's the the problems are deep at this club, um, and it's if any team was to lose like this to to Newcastle, barring maybe Southampton, I would say Spurs are way more likely to do that than Chelsea are at the moment. Six six mm. one, um, and this is this is a Chelsea side that uh, again are floundering. Yeah. You are right. Well, let's let's not stick around on Tottenham for too long. Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty more uh, either success with Ryan Mason or or yet more. I mean, every time they're thinking it can't get worse, it does. Let's look at the other team in North London who had a big disappointment uh, this weekend, this most past weekend, which is Arsenal. Uh, first place hosting 20th place uh, at their ground. You would think that is as close to a guaranteed win as possible. But no, Arsenal have committed to the crumble. The wheels are coming off and they conceded within in one minute uh, at the Emirates Stadium due to just a really, really poor mistake from Aaron Ramsdale. Um, and then, of course, who else but Theo Walcott to have put the dagger in their hearts um, with a second. A good comeback, but just, I mean, this is six points dropped for Arsenal now from their, from their last possible nine. And we're getting to a point now, we've got obviously the, the City game is tomorrow, a time of recording. There was a point where if they had managed to get results out of all these games, which I think, you know, certainly in the way that the game started in the case of Liverpool and West Ham uh, and the way that you looked at those two teams before this game against Southampton, they should have, or they could have certainly maybe got nine points from these games, but they've capitulated all three times. And although they've not got no points, and I think they would have been, you know, not unlucky to get no points from these games, the way things have gone, it just... It can't all just be because of William Saliba. I know that's the thing that a lot of fans are saying, like, oh, Saliba, Saliba, <laughs> and he has been amazing. But you can't be the best team in the league and one crucial injury sees you concede three to the bottom team in the league. It's the first time, actually, in Premier League history that the bottom-place team has gone away to the first-place team and scored three goals. Now, it's not, not, I'm sure it's not surprising to you because when would that ever happen? Well, when Arsenal mm-hmm. top of the league, that's when it did happen. Yeah, I mean, the 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 scariest thing looking at it, is the fact that both Liverpool and West Ham, they were leading 2-0. Um, mm. And, you know, this is... Uh, I think um, when I was watching the Slamter game, I think I messaged you saying, Arsenal have conceded early, so they're obviously going to win this game now. And to be fair, mm. they almost did. Um, but they left too much uh, to to the final 10 minutes and weren't able to to fully pull it back. Um, it's mindset. It's mindset. And I, and I really think that as good as Mikel Arteta is, I think he almost only has one way to motivate them, um, which is like, we're under the cosh, lads. Um, And I don't think that he knows how to motivate a team that's at the top of the league, 
which is ironic given that he learned under Pep Guardiola. And uh, I think that it shows because Arsenal are so inversely good. You know, when they're up, mm. they play like crap. And when they're down, they play fantastically. And that's the case, whether at the top of the table or up in a game. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, given that now the, the, the fight is massively more on, they'll probably play a lot better against Man City than they would have done had they been further ahead in the table at the, at the time of playing. Um, so I guess that's one small consolation, but it's 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 a weird time. It is a weird old time. It's just crazy to think, like, you, you look at the table and, you know, if all of those games, if they had locked it up after 2-0 up against those two teams, Liverpool and West Ham, and they hadn't, you know, given a, given a free goal, it was like, start off with a free goal, handicap is on. They haven't done that. They could theoretically be going into this game against Manchester City on Wednesday, 11 points clear. They could be on 81 points already. It's point where even if City win, you know, it, it could, you know, start things going, but they could be so far as it doesn't matter. And in a way, that's the most depressing thing for Arsenal is that I don't think anyone, and I think there was already a big sign of this. Obviously, you had some rival fans, but I think most sort of sober commentators were going, if Arsenal lose this lead to Manchester City, it's still an incredible achievement. Like they have come into this project. It's the third, second or third year or fourth year or whatever it is of this project. The youngest team in the Premier League. There's so much to be proud of here. Da, 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 da. If they lose it to City, who are obviously this team with loads of experience and loads of money in the squad, whatever, then fair enough. That's just City. You know, ask Liverpool. It's not easy to beat them. But they, they've done it to themselves. <laughs> it's not the City have had this amazing only wins run to the end of the season, which they might yet do. But Arsenal have shot themselves in the foot before giving City the chance to do that. Yeah, ma- massively. Um, and it's funny because, um, you know, I feel like we saw we saw the same decisions being made um every time um you know arsenal um arsenal seemed to like make make subs for example at at almost like formulaic um moments you know d- depending on how the game is going they could be 2-0 up they could be 2-1 up or they could be like 3-1 down they always will bring on Leandro Trossard in the 60th minute they'll always take off Gabriel Jesus etc etc and it feels like you need to be more reactive you need to be be looking at the game and thinking what does this game need and if this game needs ice then you need to bring on someone that can like help close out the game um but that, that's not really what's what's being done at the moment and yes we can talk about the fact that um you know someone like what was the the name of the guy who came on against liverpool jakob kiwior like the defender mm. um coming on for for martin odegaard yes he's not you know the best um in terms of i'm not i'm not slating him i'm just saying in terms of like name profile and and like just how good he is as a footballer he's he's not someone that a, a top of the league side should be bringing on at two nil down at two uh, two nil up sorry or two one up um, to close out a game because you need someone that's that's a little bit better than that and you know I, I think it again we're seeing the problems of the January transfer market which is that Arsenal didn't sign a striker or a defender um, and they they should have done it we talked about it at the time um, and we said that if they don't then the, they might lose it and. Or, or, or a top. I mean, they signed Kivior, but like not a a top. Like they needed exactly. to basically yeah, yeah. sign a, tr- a Trossard equivalent in every position. Yeah, or, or it doesn't even need to be a, a Trossard. Like I like, think like, someone, someone with a load of experience, someone like someone like Gary Cahill, 
Um, you know, someone. I don't even know if Gary Kills. What, what a chance. I think Gary Kills might be retired. I don't even know if Gary Kills is playing, but but you take my point. You know, someone. someone yeah, yeah, that, like a Carl Walker or someone like that. Yeah, uh, well, Carl Walker. Not him, obviously, because he's at City. But. Good, but someone that has experience in the Premier League, someone who knows what it takes to win, someone who has 400 games under his belt or 200 games or some big number. Um, and And just, you know. Pull them on, have them in the dressing room, being like, "Lads, this is just like, you know, eight years ago when I was when I was uh, an older player <laughs> in the dressing room at this club, um, and we did this and we we got it done, and we just got to keep our heads on." And do you know what I mean like that that kind of that kind of presence is is invaluable, and also being on the pitch, being able to um, bring the experience and close out games, and and it might have been hard, but but. You had to do it. You had to do it. They didn't. Yeah, I, I think I think that's so right. And I, for me, it would be the sort of the you know get a Trossard, but also a striker Trossard, get defender Trossard as well. Because getting in someone like Kivio is just just not. That was what we've seen in these last few games. It's not been the difference maker. I think what we did see in this game, someone who was the difference maker, and something we mentioned last week, Martin Odegaard putting the entire team on his back at three one down with about like you know two minutes of regular time left to play, and then I think about eight minutes added on. This is why you never take him off unless you are five goals clear. He stays on the pitch till the final whistle because he did put the team on his back there, and credit to him, a real captain's performance. Um, you know, trying to make up for the mistakes that have been made at the other end of the pitch, and he very nearly did so. Obviously, Trossard hit the bar, and it could have been a Another Bournemouth type scenario where a absolutely historic win kind of erases the fat again, so its result, um, you know, masking performance. Um, but it didn't, and I think Arsenal would have been lucky to get three points here. I don't think they deserved them, um, despite the fact that the Erdogan obviously played very well and and they did have a sort of a late comeback. I think now going into this game against City tomorrow. There are some who say, like, oh, you know, this really gives them... Like, I think Micah Richards was going, oh, well, now they have no room to maneuver. Now they know they need to win. I think they always knew they kind of needed to at least not lose. Um, and with the way they've been playing, I think it might be a not-do-City win. It's a how-much-do-City-win-by kind of question. Well, look, I I, <laughs> I think that you'd be crazy to to bet anything on this game in terms of how you think it'll go. Yes, City look like they'll run away with it, but those are the times where Arsenal often actually pull something out of the bag. So, and and and, and crucially, those are also the times huge, huge crunch game for Manchester City. <laughs> it's not a huge, huge crunch game, but like pivotal, like chance to essentially, you know, pull back in front and more or less, you know, write the first few letters of your name on the trophy. Foden's going in goal. Foden's <laughs> going in goal. Pep, Pep, Pep's playing him in goal. <laughs> Something he's got, he's saving something wacky up his sleeve. I like the idea that he's like, <laughs> there's a maximum pepism, yeah. I like the idea that he's like, I need to give Mikel Arteta something that he's never seen before because he knows my playbook. He's like turning to the final page of his book that like has never seen the sun, um, since he <laughs> scribbled in it at 3 a.m., <laughs> you know, 15 years ago. Why can't everyone be a fullback? <laughs> Um, and he'll he'll pull it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to mention, I don't know if you said this um, intentionally or not, but Martin Odegaard was the player that, that got taken off. Um, you said he, he had to stay on the pitch um, in, in moments like that. He got taken off when when they were two one up at Liverpool, and he got yeah, he got, he yeah, got yeah, taken yeah, exactly. off um, at two two against West Ham. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's what I was saying. That's like, he is the yeah. guy who you were talking just earlier about Tottenham, about sort of motivators. And Martin Odegaard is the literal captain. He's been the guy who's been motivating that squad the whole time. He's also been, 
you know, their best player, bar probably Saka, or you can make a, a case for either of them, really. Um, I, I just think taking him off unless you are three goals clear is insane. Especially when, by that same token, Mikel Arteta has left Saka on for the whole game every single one of these games when he's been clearly knackered. And I get that. I get that logic of, like, Saka's been their best player, you don't want to take him off. But surely extend that beyond just one player. <laughs> Have Erdogan on as well, or yeah. keep Martinelli on a little bit longer sometimes. It, it does seem It does seem like little oversights that are leading to uh, bigger impacts. Um, I mean, is Fabio Vieira any good? No, no, no. I'm not sold. He is. uh, But you know what? Maybe unfairly. Maybe he's another case of a player who will come good down the line, but he just looks like like he's about... 20 kilos soaking wet he has no ability on the ball he he just doesn't look adapted to the pace of play in the premier league whatsoever um he's so so out of his depth in that team that it's just unbelievable he's one of those players that you know he makes the players around him look a lot worse i think it's funny we, we talk about sort of Aaron Ramsdale uh, making that mistake early on and another player who made a lot of mistakes in this game was Thomas Partey Romeo Lavia by the way credit to him had him on absolute toast but I think when you're in those positions so you know the defensive unit of Saliba Gabriel Ramsdale or that sort of fantastic midfield trio we've seen throughout the season of Erdogan playing in that sort of right half space Xhaka sort of marauding a little bit further forwards in, in, on, on the left but coming back to support party when needed so he doesn't have to you know scan 360 degrees every time he receives the ball uh with his back to goal and, and, and Thomas Partey, when you start to break those apart, and part of this is because it's very early into the Arsenal project, and maybe Arteta's only been able to, inf- you know, infringe the uh, so influence of the first team with with his his managerial doctrine, if you like. But as soon as you start to break up those relationships, it just makes the entire team look so much worse. And Thomas Partey and Aaron Ramsdale, who've been two of Arsenal's best players all season, uh, and I think both could have. Maybe not Ramsdale because there's been loads of good keepers, but I think Partey definitely has a case to be made for being in the team of the season. Has just been really bad in the last few games, and I think that is partly due to breaking up. You know, whether it's the left back some games or the centre back who plays into him or the guy who's playing off his shoulder. So, you know, the, the whole team just starts to look worse. Now, you look, we always thought that part of this was going to happen. Arsenal were going to get injuries. Their squad isn't as deep as cities, and they were always going to slow down at some point. Just the nature of the beast, and and that is what happened. So, in a way, it's not surprising. But it's just going to be a shame for Arsenal to have lost it in this. If they do indeed lose it, we're sort of saying it like it's a foregone conclusion. They might go out and have a legendary result against Man City tomorrow when Pep does something crazy. I honestly would but be I surprised. think I think we'd all be surprised, and I think that's why no, I we can say it without... Oh, you, you wouldn't. I would be surprised. I think I think Pep always, you know, pulls it out against Arsenal. Um, yeah, it's just a bit of a shame for it to have gone out like this. Like the, the Liverpool game, fine. It was a bit disappointing, but you could say, you know, it's Anfield. For them to do it against, to drop four points in a title challenge against West Ham and the 20th place team in the league, Southampton, that's going to be sore for a long time for a lot of Arsenal fans, I think. Hmm. Also, a West Ham that have had a really torrid season and are comfortably in the bottom half. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the irony is, talking about how they needed to sign a defender and a striker um, in January and didn't. The the one position that they did sign was was someone in midfield. Um, they brought in a player almost exactly the likes of which I was describing in Jorginho. Um, and he watched from the bench as Fabio Vieira started um, and and had a bad game. Um, so that, I thought, was, was honestly very surprising, um, especially given that I think that he could have done that, that role quite well and, and I think he could have supported Thomas Partey quite well um, I don't really know what happened there's to also, there's also Emil Smith-Rowe like what, whatever happened to him 
he was i mean i don't know what his recovery's been like but he was so good last season and he's now apparently come back from injury because he's on the bench a lot and i think he's played a few minutes here and there and fabio vieira gets the nod ahead of him ahead of a guy who knows the premier league and has played quite well in quite a number of games in the premier league yeah i mean he's only played 100 minutes in the prem this year i think uh, emil smith row this season but i mean no uh, yeah i mean season. i mean this season so i'm saying yeah, yeah no, no no no, no, no been, i, 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 I know but He's been out the side. Um, don't know. Don't know what happened there. Um, don't know whether or not it's to do with um, you know, not feeling like he's training hard enough. Um, not progressing like the way that Arteta wants. Not playing like the way that Arteta wants. I, I don't know. But um, I think. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> the I'm saying this with quite a quite a healthy pitch of salt. But I never thought that. I would say the sentence of in Arsenal's run in the title when like in Arsenal's run towards winning the title this year, you could really tell that they were missing Granite Xhaka. Mm, yeah, it's very true. And, and he's uh, reported, well, he's been said that he's a doubt by Mikel Arteta for the game tomorrow against Man City, which I think, again, yeah, I think most people are looking at it and going, mm, that's another nail on the coffin for Arsenal, which I agree is, you know, if you, if you do, said that to someone. What's wrong with him? So I saw on on like the app that I used, it just said unknown sickness. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, maybe the sniffles. Uh, sniffles for a little week. <laughs> but but yeah, it's okay. it's not great to be to be missing him as well as William Saliba, who I think it was always a bit of a pipe dream for Arsenal fans to think he was going to come back. And even if he had, you know, you don't really want him on crutches um, against against City. It's funny actually because I've seen a lot of Arsenal fans on Twitter this week coming up with these like hilarious, um, really unorthodox formations to play against Man City. Um, which part of me is like, you know what? That would because like if you go out playing like you have the last few games you, you just almost guaranteed do lose to man city so it would be kind of funny to see them like play with a like a three two two three or whatever mm-hmm. um but then again that's what tottenham tried to do against newcastle and look what happened yeah sure was um we'd be remiss to not mention the other side in this battle which was southampton um a, a very good performance from minute one which is especially impressive given where Southampton are in the table and where Arsenal are in the table. Um, they've managed to get three points. I oh, sorry, one point here. Um, they're still in 20th place, um, but they're now only four points off 17th. Um, how did you think they played today? Do you think this is a turn, a corner turned? Do you think that they still have a chance of staying up? Or do you think this was a, uh, a rare uh, spark? I think, unfortunately for Southampton, this was a bit of a rare spark. I mean, you look at some of the other results they've had recently. It's just been loss and loss and loss. And I think the last one they had was sort of early March against Leicester City, who themselves were a little bit all at sea and still aren't necessarily (laughs) clear of everything. Um, It's a shame because Southampton do have a lot of good young players, like Romeo Lavia, for example, who has been really, really good in a lot of different games. I think they're going to be in that situation where they go down and they kind of have their bones picked clean and maybe have a a little bit of trouble getting back up. I just think having Nathan Jones, and we've said this a million times, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but just like that little weird fever dream just put them in so much trouble they'll never be able to recover. Um, And, you know, mathematically, they're knocked down yet, so there is still a chance. Um, and maybe, as it has for, you know, you talked about how West Ham were having a torrid season, and they were, until they drew with Arsenal, and that sort of spurred them onto the confidence to get a 4-0 win against Bournemouth, uh, which we might have time to talk about a little bit later. So maybe that will be what happens with Southampton, and they'll have a, you know, a resurgence of, of confidence and form. I don't see it happening, though. Yeah, 
that that's fair i think um they'll have or well, they've they've created um their work cut out for them um i don't, don't know if that works um they have that they have their work cut out for them and they made it thus themselves um and they don't necessarily have the easiest run in but they are playing a couple of teams around them um such as bournemouth and um nottingham forest so um you know they've they've kept the they've kept the flame alive for one more week at least um but they'll have to do very well and better than they've done all season if they are to stay up from this point on Every point counts at this point, that's certainly true, and this point might make all the difference when the end of the season comes. Let's take a quick break for a bit of useless trivia, and as we're talking about relegation teams and the relegation zone, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that later, I've got a relegation zone fun fact for you, uh, and that's that QPR, Queen's Park Rangers, were in the top flight relegation zone on the day that Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, the day that Margaret Thatcher was ousted, and the day that she died. (laughs) They were in the relegation zone. Was it the top flight relegation zone on all three of those days? Yeah, that wasn't all one day, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Became PM was ousted that afternoon and died of shock. I don't think that was the same day. No, I don't remember reading about how Margaret Thatcher died. I don't remember that being it. <laughs> um, that is that is a fun that is a fun little uh, little coincidence um, and one that I did not know. Um, that's very good. I also am excited to share with you my fun fact for this week, because if you haven't heard it before, um, I think it's fantastic. Um, actually, uh, my, my friend Harry told me this one, so, uh, credit to him. But, um, did you know that since joining Liverpool in 2017, Mohamed Salah has received more yellow cards for taking his shirt off to celebrate goals against Man United than Man United have scored goals against Liverpool. Oh my, is that true? That's unreal. <laughs> do, do, you have the, do you have the numbers? Do you know what yeah. the numbers are? <laughs> he's, scored, he's got two yellow cards for taking his shirts off to celebrate goals and, and you have only um, scored one against Liverpool at that time. Is that... At Anfield, that's Anfield, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, that's still crazy, but like, <laughs> that's an <laughs> unbelievable stat. <laughs> oh, luxury pub content there. You win this week for sure. That's um, that's a little one for for you and yours, Cameron. Let's have a little bit of a National League palate cleanser. Uh, just a quick note here uh, that for anyone who didn't notice, on Sunday, uh, Wrexham beat Boreham Wood to win the league, uh, and. Uh, did so with a plum. Their fans sort of rushed the pitch and and had a grand old time. It was uh yeah, a really, really um you know, heartwarming thing to see these two guys who had like no real connection with football at all until a few years ago come in, fix up the team, um, you know, show a real passion for not just the football club, but the area, uh, and, you know, bring them up back to the football league for the first time in 15 years. A really heartwarming story. I know there are some naysayers who sort of hate that they've been getting so much attention, but that is always going to happen when you're owned by a massive movie star and also Rob McElhenney, who is my personal favorite, but, um, <laughs> certainly less famous than Ryan reynolds um that's always going to happen uh, and i think it's just it's a heartwarming story it's uh it's really interesting to see you know we we hear so much especially at the top end of football but throughout football really throughout the pyramid of like 
passionless owners you know we were just talking about it earlier with spurs mm. owners who have bought something as just a bit of an investment or something they've lost interest in and it happens you know not just in football it happens across sport people who are sort of you know shadow owners and that's obviously always risable and you know something that everyone hates so when you see people who come in even if they don't have a, a prior connection with the area put money in put time in they've spent loads of time in Wrexham even today I saw Rob McElhenney sort of tweeting at Gareth Bale being like hey come to the golf course with me and I promise I won't be convincing you to come back for one last season um <laughs> yeah which nobody just, believed just, <laughs> which is great but yeah it's, it's just it's a nice thing to see and I think anyone you know, at any level, wishes they had that for their club, having, you know, obviously the amount of money would be different depending on what we're talking about, having two people come in, be really passionate about a project, and we don't know where this is going to end with Wrexham. It could be the case they get up to League One, they stall a little bit, or League Two or whatever, and they stall a little bit there, and the interest runs out, and the sort of documentary series gets a bit stale, and they sell up, and then it's time to get the pitchforks out and go, ah, no celebrity owners, but for the time being, where we are at the story, I, I think if you don't find it heartwarming and delightful story you need some more joy in your life and i say this as an incredibly <laughs> or, or cynical you must person be myself a county fan <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well fair, fair enough to not county fans who hate it um yeah i agree i think um you know looking across um looking across the pond i feel like the the obvious parallel to draw is is with a team like <laughs> I, 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 I you meant america there for a second i thought you meant across the pond to wales and i was like i don't know that that <laughs> No, I actually meant I actually meant across the channel. <laughs> uh, probably probably shouldn't use that phrase. Um, across the channel, which is um, someone like RB Leipzig, um, who have took over a team, built it um, from you know a, a team that was I think in like the fifth or sixth league um, at the time, and and basically shoehorned them into challenging um, for the the Bundesliga title. Um, in a few short years and that has been criticized uh, and, and I would say rightly so um, but there's almost an, an ironic uh, like reverse happening here which is that in a, a country where um, you know fan ownership is the norm a a big multinational company found a way to circumnavigate the 50 plus one rule that German football has and have have led a basically like a franchise club a a big multinational club um into the promised land whereas at Wrexham what we're seeing is um you know a team in a a pyramid which is dominated by big business and foreign investment being bought out by two very um very present people um mm. you know, yes they are celebrity owners but they're people as you said they're people that are, are taking the time to get to know the community uh, and be a part of it um and and i for one think that it's very refreshing and i don't care if they're celebrities or not i would love to see more of this kind of thing happening more people coming along and going okay i've made i've made a couple of million in business i'm gonna buy league league two side um, Bristol Rovers and and like work work with them to try and get them further up, um, you know, and be a part of of the area. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I think it is fantastic, and I think the the key difference between a Wrexham and an RB Leipzig, even though you know they've accelerated Leipzig to all the way to the top flight within eight years, is that 
there was the the big difference is Red Bull didn't sort of honor the tradition and the sort of the history of the club. They even sort of changed the name. They put the the brand in front of it. It's not like Wrexham and now Aviation Gin Hollywood, um, and and that's what the, the, the new team is. Which I think the uh, the mood around them would be significantly different if they were. I think the fact that the owners have come in and respected what the club's about, respected the community, put time into not just turn up to the games, but you see them sort of going out of pubs and stuff like that, and. Maybe it's all PR, who knows? Maybe I'm being sold the Kool-Aid and I'm gulping it down greedily, but it, it looks and it feels nice from where I'm sitting. The Kool-Aid is working. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I haven't heard anything bad about them as as owners. And I feel like you would have at least heard a rumour or, or so by now. Do you know what I mean? You would have at least had someone tweeting being like, I've been a diehard Wrexham fan for... For the last fifty years, I've been to every game. Or, or do you know what I mean? And we haven't seen yeah, any yeah, of yeah. that. We haven't seen any of that at all. So, for now, I'm I'm content to believe that they are just two happy-go-lucky guys uh, enjoying um, owning a uh, semi-successful, um, very old, very historic um, football club. Interesting to see where it goes next. I say Let's semi-successful just in just you know they because they just had that success. That's. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to say that. Let's go to the FA Cup uh, action. We had two semi-finals uh, conclude. Uh, Manchester City uh, bullied poor championship side uh, Sheffield United, which I thought was very rude of them. Uh, Sheffield United, I actually thought, started quite well uh, until that penalty towards the end of the first half. Um, it's been drawing a lot of criticism, this one, because of the attendance of the game. I actually found the figures for attendance this game. There were 69,000 of the 90,000 possible uh, attendees at this game, and a lot of people sort of levelling this charge at City uh, versus Sheffield United. Any any comments from, from your side on that, or is this just people piling in on City because it's the only thing you can when they win everything uh i mean what's uh, i i don't know i feel like it's it's a good question um but i mean man city fill their stadium they've got like a attendance rate this year of like 99.6 percent um and yeah they also have loads of sponsors with great numbers as well (laughs) you can argue you can argue that yeah they're they're um you know a lot of those seats are taken up by businesses and tourists and things like that and maybe those businesses and tourists didn't want to go to a game like this um but you know just just is what it is really um if i was going to criticize them i I would i would would say it's very mean very mean of them to field a full strength 11 what I think the interesting conversation is maybe, I mean, obviously there's the easy sort of ha-ha, like City can't fill their ground or City can't, you know, fill whatever. I do think it, it raises an interesting question that we seem to have every single season, not you or I per se, but just the footballing community, about all of these games being held at Wembley. Because you've got two northern teams here and a country that is replete with brilliant stadiums over every inch of the country. And they've both had to travel down, both sets of fans, during a cost of living crisis, I might add, to Wembley when the winning team will have to travel down to Wembley again anyway um, and it may have been prudent for the FA to recognise the cost and time incurred in having people travel down from Yorkshire or Manchester uh, down to London and instead held it at some neutral ground a little bit closer to home. It's Do you know what, I think that that's a really good point um, but I think that the it does overlook the excitement and I think that you know, if you talk to any any um, fan of like a championship team or lower, 
Um, you know, whenever they talk about, for example, if they've made it into the championship playoffs, they go, this is great because now we get our day at Wembley. Um, so, yeah. I, I think that's true of some games, but like for the for the FA Cup semi-finals, if you want to have like all, all it does, because I saw some City fans being like, oh, it's our 21st time at Wembley in eight years or whatever it is. Cause they've been playing there three times a season basically for about 10 years. Yeah, but Sheffield has so, Sheffield United haven't, but, you know, I think it's still a really big day out if you go to a massive ground that isn't your own. There's still a sense of, you know, occasion if you were to go to, for example, Old Trafford or St. James's Park or Villa Park, which would have all been closer than than going down to London. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. In uh, what I would have wanted to see, Perfect World, was um, maybe the FA approaching both sets of fans and saying, would you want to have it at Wembley or closer to home and if both sets of fans said closer to home then then changing it yeah i, I agree well, with I, th- I, 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 I think i so i agree with that i don't even think it should be a question before the semi-final because obviously then there's you know it's a lot to think about you know you don't want to be the person who changes it and then you lose that game and it's a, i think it should just be a thing that the fa put to you know conversation with all of the clubs in the football league and whoever else you know i mean obviously there's all the teams we play in the first few rounds of the FA cup as well but just hold a big forum or even just have a have an online poll on their linkedin or something that only the club ceos could vote on and say you know do you think we should start moving it around because also it's just nice to go to other grounds i'm sure that most city fans or, or most fans of any sort of successful team that normally gets into the you know up there in the fa cup and the the carabao cups and stuff like that wants to travel a little bit more and it's nicer for you know if you weigh up the the Sheffield United fans who would have wanted their day out at Wembley, they might have preferred to have a day out at all if the trip down to London is a little bit too time-consuming, a little bit too costly when you were all tightening belts, really. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's definitely the case that um, your point is well made due because of the the, the poor attendance of this game. Um, so, you know, I think that... Um, although, although I think the other part is... Um, I'm not sure what... Um, Sheffield United Stadium capacity is, but I don't think it'll be more than 45,000 people. And I don't think that the Etihad is more than 65,000 or, or many more than 65,000. Um, no, no, it's much less than that. They've just applied for expansion. I think it's, I I think think it's 50 something, like 50, isn't it? I think, it's 50, I think it's 50k odd, yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in that sense, to get 69,000 fans in a 90,000 seater is it's pretty good. That's that's better mm. attended than any game either of the team have had all season. Yeah, but by default, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's not by default, football though, wise, it? it's not by default. Well, well, <laughs> if you have a larger a larger attendance capacity, you are like like by that much as well. It was almost double of cities and, and Sheffield United. I'm I'm not sure um, how large their stadium is, but it's, um, I think it's even smaller than that. That's what it means though what it means is um you know for for, for that distance traveled it is the 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 best attended away game for both of those sides the whole all season so it's not that there was a lack of of engagement um you know they they also semi-final it wasn't just like a game on the weekend outperform as much as they could have done well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Let's talk briefly about the football because we could. Uh, we've talked a lot about other stuff, but the football, um, which I think is fair because this was just essentially, you know, 
a year nine <laughs> bullying a year four, <laughs> making them give all their lunch money, which was really rude. Uh, Amara's hat trick, uh, which is obviously good for him, good for his confidence. Uh, and Sheffield United, yeah, surprisingly good. Felt bad for them throughout the whole game. I just wanted to say, stop bullying him uh, to Manchester City for playing such a strong 11. Um, well done. Well done, Man City. Let's look at the other semi-final, which was a much more hard-fought game. And really interesting, really interesting that Brighton went into this game uh, rated as the favourites by most of the bookies, which is actually really interesting because who would have thunk that? I mean, six years ago, six, seven years, even like four years ago when Brighton was sort of doing that thing where they loved to finish 17th. The fact that Brighton could go into a game against Manchester United's favourites was is pretty crazy. And United did have uh, a few key injuries, but even so, a testament to, to Brighton. Who then did, of course, lose, which is a shame. Um, but, you know, testaments all around. Wan Bissaka, who knew? He's had a, a great season and topped off with a brilliant result here. A brilliant performance here, rather, uh, against Kaoru Matoma, which I thought was, um, he played in a way that I didn't know he he fully had the ability to, or, or I had, uh, I did at one point and forgot when he left Crystal Palace to go to, to Manchester City, uh, to Manchester United, rather, of course. Um, and of course, the sad way to end it, penalties, uh, and not only did Brighton lose, but they lost because of Solly March missing a penalty, uh, and as some will remember, he did the same against Charlton when they went out of the Carabao Cup early this season. No, not an easy, not an easy one, not an easy pill to swallow, for sure. Um, for Solly March, it, it, you hate to see it, especially from, from a player like that who, um, I, I would say broadly, most people just want to see succeed and do well. Um, I think that, yeah, it's funny about Wampasaka. I mean, I remember a few years ago when um, everyone was saying that he was, he had taken over from Cesar Azpilicueta as the best, you know, man marking, sorry, not man marking, one to one full back defender in the league. Um, and there was a really strong basis for that. He, he was, he used to put in very solid performances week in, week out. And I think uh, as Manchester United could seem to lose, lose their way, so too did he. Um, mm. and it's nice to see a little bit more of that old form. Absolutely. Well, Manchester derby in the FA Cup final, um, which could set us up for a Manchester United domestic double or potentially Manchester City for a uh, rival equaling treble. Uh, very mm. interesting there. Uh, it's not what I would have wanted. I would have wanted Brighton versus Sheffield United for the underdog vibes, uh, and that's what the FA Agreed. Cup is all about. But we, we move. Uh, let's talk last, of course, about the great escape. Who got the memo last weekend and who didn't? Uh, let's start with Leicester, <laughs> who got a crucial win against Wolves. And of course, West Ham, who distanced themselves from their car fire with a 4-0 away win. Uh, impressive brace of performances, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, Leicester to get to get that 2-1 win and, and against Wolves, no less, who um, are currently just above them in 13th place, was fantastic. Um, the way they did it as well with a not a super late winner, but um, you know coming back uh, from one 0 down to win it will have felt cathartic um, and and is impressive and um, probably uh, almost in and of itself justifies the decision to to sack the manager and bring in um, the new one. Um, and Wolves, I guess, it's one of those things where they're not really fighting for anything anymore. They're safe. They're comfortable. Um, they're not really gonna. Um, realistically progress too much further up um, up the table. They're unlikely to oust uh, Crystal Palace from their 12th place position, which they find themselves so comfortably. Um, and West Ham as well, um, I would say have probably with this result sealed their safety because they are quite a few points clear of 
18th place and they have played one fewer game than the teams around them. Yeah, absolutely. I think with Leicester, I'm not sure if this is true, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it is. That this is the first time they played all three of Patson Dacca, Kelechi Hinacho, and Jamie Vardy at the same time. Um, I'm not mm. sure if that's, that's true. Any uh, eagle-eared, eagle-eyed uh, Leicester uh, fans, please let me know if I'm completely off the mark there. But I like the shape. I liked how they played, and you're right, to come back is, is definitely very impressive. It shows a lot of grit towards the back end of the season when you need it, which is not something I thought that Leicester had in spades, so good for them to discover it now, if not any earlier in the season. And West Ham, yeah, West Ham absolutely blasting Bournemouth to pieces, um, really distancing themselves from from the bottom of the pack and, and trying to make sure that they're not having to scrabble for any more points by filling their boots when they can and getting the maximum number of points. Very, very impressive uh, from these two relegation contenders. Um, in the middle of the zone, Everton with a point, uh, Southampton two. We've discussed Southampton uh, in their game uh, fairly uh, in detail. Everton with a point. Uh, your thoughts on this? My thoughts are that Palace only allowed them to do that so they could maintain 12th place because they are still there. <laughs> Um, I think uh, I, I like the uh, I like the argument, and so I'm therefore going to accept it. Um, I mean, I think um, if anyone was going to win this game, it was maybe going to be Everton. Um, Palace had, you know, they they controlled the game in terms of possession, but uh, Everton definitely had um, the lion's share of of shots on the goal. Um, I, I thought that is about right for a nil nil, wasn't it? Um, neither side looked crazily threatening um it's nice to see Dominic Calvert-Lewin back on the pitch even if he didn't bag one and yeah I thought a very inoffensive game of football barring the red card to Mason Holgate Mm, indeed and last but not least or perhaps least in terms of form how are Leeds still not in the relegation zone (laughs) (laughs) honestly not a bad question I mean they've lost the last three games um and they don't look set to to change it anytime soon, especially given when, that they're when did playing... they pick up enough points earlier in the season to not currently be it? Because I I can't remember. They they had a weird run um, when they got rid of um, doing Jesse March. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a they had a weird run where they got quite a few results. Um, I think they they beat um, they beat Wolves uh, and they beat Nottingham Forest, um, and that, those two wins were were quite were quite big. Um, I genuinely think that's that was it. <laughs> it was those two games. Um, <laughs> that's the only thing separating them. Yeah, I'm, I'm they, surprised. They drew with Brighton as well in March. Pretty impressive. I, I mean, I, I said it last week, but it, it's worth saying again because I do think it every week. Every single week I tune in to watch Leeds and every single week I think, how are these not bottom of the league? Um, they're playing some really bad football. It's crazy to think they could stay up um, because they're still not in the relegation zone. So, No, they're not. But I don't know if you've seen their... Um their final fixtures because they're pretty brutal. Um, they're playing Leicester who have maybe now slightly found their feet. They're playing Bournemouth who, despite that loss against West Ham, have been in pretty good form recently. Um, they're playing Man City. They're playing Newcastle. They're playing Spurs. And then they're also playing West Ham who have just turned things around. Honestly, the only one that I would say is a definite loss there is Man City away. Um I could see. Uh, I mean, Newcastle, he, Newcastle. Come on. <laughs> I think they could. I mean, I, I've just said they play the worst, the worst football of the league every single week. But I'm, I'm, 
I'm assuming that they do <laughs> you know some what? sort of big... I changed my mind because you said something. <laughs> they How pull some that? magical rabbit out of the hat and start fighting with real grit. Um, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. look, I'm clearly bit, contradicting like myself. Your your contrary nature has superseded <laughs> your your dismissal of Leeds as a football club. Contradicting myself <laughs> at, at sonic speed. Um, well, as I'm getting to that point now, probably a good point to end it for this week. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much. And it's heating up at the bottom and the top of the table. If there's one thing you can hang your hat on, it's Crystal Palace in 12th. We'll catch you next week. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.